0: welcome to a very special book club episode of unsinkable a few years ago I sat down with Stephen Beale's down with the old canoe a cultural history of the Titanic disaster and I wrote so many notes in the margins <laughs> that my copy now I still have it but I need to to buy a fresh copy that is pristine that it's it's almost it almost looks frenetic. It almost looks like a mad person wrote these notes. But I had never until a few years ago, when I encountered his work, I had never known how rich of a cultural history there was pre Ballard pre 97, even pre Walter Lord, those were the touchstones that I was aware of in the cultural history of the ship. And all of the richness that Beale brings to the forefront, uh, the gender dynamics in the 1953 movie, the songs and poems in the African American community related to the disaster. And we talk a lot about this in the interview, but just building a sense of what life was in 1912, when the disaster happened, and how the disaster was used by different groups of people almost as an ideological weapon to uh, make their points politically in terms of race, class, gender. I also realized in the course of our interview, which really moved me, and I think you'll see why, that I think sometimes I'm a bit too dismissive of the period of cultural history encompassing Walter Lord and the work he did and the cultural significance of his work, and the Titanic Historical Society and the work they did in the 50s moving forward. I think I am sometimes so hell bent on dismissing the white Anglo-Saxon male narrative of, of Titanic's cultural history that I maybe I seem a little bit too dismissive, which would be completely hypocritical of me because I myself get upset if people are dismissive of James Cameron and all of the work he has done to continue to research the wreck and the ship. So I I don't know it was it was eye opening for me. It was a reset button for me and kind of pardon the pun diving back into the cultural history of Titanic pre-1997. So I want to thank Stephen for bringing such a nuanced and important conversation to unsinkable. I mean this hundred percent, I left the interview with a thousand new questions, feeling refreshed and energized more so than I thought I could be even about Titanic. Really, I think it's the perfect kind of end cap book club episode for the season. And I highly recommend if you haven't yet, get your copy of Down With the Old. New. Stephen Beale is executive director of the Humanities Center at Harvard and senior lecturer in history and literature. He is also the author of American Gothic, A Life of America's Most Famous Painting, which is from 2005, and Independent Intellectuals in the United States, 1910 to 1945. He was so gracious with his time. Uh, He didn't know me from Adam, (laughs) so I I just want to thank you, Stephen, for spending some time with Unsinkable, and it means the world to both me and my listeners. So without further ado, I'm going to get you to the interview, and stick around after the interview for a couple of quick announcements. I'm LA Beatles, and this is Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is an interview with Stephen Beal, author of Down with the Old Canoe. A Cultural History of the Titanic Disaster. All right. Hi there, Stephen Beal. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Unsinkable. I, we were talking a little bit before the recording started, and I told you I was a little starstruck, which I am, because Down with the Old Canoe, I think is definitively you know, the most important work on the cultural history of Titanic, and particularly since it was written before 1997, when a lot of us are our kind of journey with cultural understanding of Titanic begins, uh, especially for my, you know, age bracket. So my first question, and it's the one I ask all of my guests is, how did you come to Titanic? And I think the depth of research that you've done on Titanic since whenever your sort of first moment of, you know, I, I think it, more than any other guest I've had, I'm so curious to hear what the answer to this question is. So I would love to hear just how you came to want to study Titanic so in-depthly.
1: Thanks. Uh, thanks so much. And it's it's really nice to talk to you. Um, I, uh, I, I came to it quite indirectly, uh, like a lot of people of my generation and even older generations. Yeah, I think I read Walter, I know I read Walter Lord's Night to Remember at some point as a kid, but I didn't, I didn't really get the Titanic bug uh, at that point. And I was finishing my first book, which is of the same era, about the same era, but pretty remote from Titanic. And I was reading about Henry Adams, who was the, grandson and great-grandson of American presidents, John Adams and John Quincy Adams. And Henry Adams was a kind of fixture of Washington DC society, but he saw himself as a failure given that pedigree. Uh, He himself was a historian. Anyway, I was reading about Henry Adams and I found out that he had passage booked on the second trip of the Titanic. That is, he would have gone from New York uh, to, to England on the, on the second trip of the Titanic. And when it sank, he wrote these just fantastic letters reflecting on what this meant. And he was in his early seventies at the time. He was cranky. He'd been a curmudgeon (laughs) basically his whole life, uh, was not, uh, was not a big fan of the emerging 20th century, really questioned deeply the whole idea of progress that was central to uh, the faith in technology and American exceptionalism and all of those things. And so given that perspective, he writes these really dark letters about the Titanic and what it meant. Uh, He connects it to... Uh, the implosion of the Republican party at the time, or what he thought was going to be the end of the Republican party, because Taft and Roosevelt were slugging it out for the 1912 uh, nomination. Uh, And and then, you know, you just kind of, it, it, it's kind of an i told you so moment for him right i've been i've been raising questions about our our naive faith and progress for a long time and and yeah, and, been... here, and here you go right and so I don't know that kind of that that just planted the seed that there must be a lot of other people reflecting on these things in nineteen twelve from there i I kind of quickly leapt to some of the folk music that I write about in the book and that mm-hmm. Gave me the title for the book, but particularly Jack, uh, particularly um, Leadbelly's song about Jack Johnson and the Titanic, and that kind of suggested that there were going to be other really rich veins to pursue in terms of how different communities reacted differently to to the sinking and derived different meanings from it. So that's that's how I got into it. Not out of a you know, not of a out of a particular love of ships or shipwrecks or? Like that.
0: No, that's, it's so interesting. And I, I think I, you know, I did an episode on Joseph LaRoche, the black man on the Titanic. And so I, in that episode, I, and I used your book heavily, but I did get to touch on that for listeners a little bit, some of the connections between how, you know, black Americans were interpreting the disaster through song and, and the relationship of, 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 the absence of, you know, a black presence on the Titanic and how even that created a cultural history all on its own. I mean, that's a perfect segue to my first question, which is, you know, your book and and listeners, I, so this is a book club episode, and I've encouraged them to read, although I think, you know, listening and then reading or reading and listening is fine either way with how we do these. But I think the richness of each chapter your your research I mean every chapter is is really a, almost a standalone work in itself with the richness of the research and so your book is this wonderful combination of academic work and accessibility you know the average titanic person can pick it up and read it easily whether they have any academic training or not and that's not the case with every you know academic work unfortunately and so why do you think? Why do you think that your book is the rarity, though? Why do you think that academics have been scared away from the Titanic story? I talked about this with uh, Gareth Russell, who wrote Ship of Dreams. He was on a few months ago, and we talked about this a little bit. But I, why do you think that is? Why do you think that that bridge? You know, I I went to obviously undergrad and then grad school in history. Never once was the word mentioned. And I, I'm curious, as an academic, what you think is the answer to that? Like, why do you think there's such a gap there?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I should say, and and this goes back to your question about how I got interested in this. Um, I wrote a very academic book for my first book, which was based Mm -hmm. on my dissertation. And, um, like many people then and still, uh, maybe even worse now, uh, the academic job market was not awesome. And I was adjuncting and was, you know, really committed myself to trying to write my next book in a way that I would reach beyond a fairly limited, specialized academic audience. Mm-hmm. So um, so when I realized that there was something in the Titanic that hadn't been written about, uh, that there hadn't really been a cultural history of the Titanic, I I, I thought, okay... This is an opportunity for me to try a different kind of writing and and um uh and it's really generous of you to say that it you know that I succeeded in
0: absolutely uh, bridging, yeah.
1: bridging that that uh divide i think i think the main reason why academic historians are not particularly interested in the in the Titanic is because rightly uh they don't think that in and of itself it's a transformative event, right? That in the mm-hmm. scale of the 20th century, right, there are much more important, intrinsically mm-hmm. important events. I mean, World War II, uh, World War One comes, uh, you know, two years later and the Depression and World War II. I mean, the <laughs> the rest of the 20th century yeah <laughs> rich in, in in disasters that claimed a lot more lives and that had more of a significant and lasting impact in various uh, in various uh, dimensions. So it's hard, it's I think it's hard for academic historians to answer the "so what" question, right? Which is central to what academic historians are concerned with. Why does this? Mm-hmm why does this matter? Why does this event or series of events matter? And aside from, you know, changing certain regulations and practices, um, in, uh, in, in, in the shipping industry, there isn't a lot that you can point to. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think that's one reason why it doesn't Figure significantly, and the the other, I mean, the 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 closest comparison I would say is the Civil War, right? Where there are a lot of non professional historians who write yeah. work, some of really high quality, some of not not such high quality about the Civil War, but there you don't have the you don't you don't have the so what question. Obviously, that that
0: yeah, that's the opposite. <laughs> that, that's, that's the opposite. That's, yeah. That's there, well, and there. and, and I it, think really,
1: any really any war draws both um yeah. academic historians because yeah. World
0: War II is like that as well I would argue yeah, yeah absolutely for sure,
1: for sure but I think the Titanic is just it's it's hard for academic historians to uh to see uh, to see any inherent significance mm-hmm. in the in the event itself which is why you know really the only maybe there's another way that in my imagination I can't think of but you know really the only way of approaching the Titanic from an academic perspective is to think of it, to think of it in terms of its meanings, not in terms of writing another book about what happened that night. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is that there are so many books and already were so many books (laughs) when I started in on this, that do a really good job of, um, of reconstructing and filling in gaps and, narrating the various stories of of what happened. Um, yeah, it's,
0: and a lot of books are concerned with just reconstructing the minute by minute. And that is a different type of history, obviously. And that's not what I do. I That's why your book was so important to me. What I want to do is just be kind of make the map abstract, zone in on different parts of it, zoom out. Obviously, the cultural history is hugely important to me. Do you see that changing? Or do you see Titanic as sort of always kind of in the corner that historians won't maybe necessarily want to to integrate? I don't know, because as you were talking, I was thinking like, my whole podcast is about this But you're right, right? I did just an episode on the Lusitania a few weeks ago. And you look at something like the Lusitania, way more significant in so many ways, you know, in World War. So it it is, it's so true. And I think to some titaniacs, what we're saying would almost be blasphemy. But It is true. The the meaning of Titanic is what is kind of shoved into it by different groups of people. Yeah. So do you, I mean, I know it's kind of beating a dead horse at this point, but do you see that ever changing or do you think Titanic will always kind of be off to the side in that sense?
1: I, I don't, I don't see it changing. I mean, I do think that there will continue to be books about the Titanic that, that cross different audiences, but but i don't I don't you know, I don't see academic historians suddenly deciding that there <laughs> is this
0: yeah worth yeah
1: deep, deep uh previously ignored intrinsic importance to the to to this particular disaster that would lead them to write, you know to to, to make it a significant focus of academic history um, i mean the the plus side of this is that. It's you know it it's <laughs> policing the boundaries of history is is not certainly what not anything I'm interested in right and so absolutely the fact yeah that the Titanic is so open to so many people to research on their own without you know having mm-hmm. to. <laughs> <laughs> go through this sometimes brutal process that you and I endured of getting
0: a hundred percent. Yeah. I, and I, it's I fantastic
1: think that, that it's, that it's open and it's mm-hmm. inviting and people find their angles and people don't obsess about why, why does this matter? They're interested in it because they're interested in it because it's a dramatic event and because it has all of these moving parts to it. And there's always as, as, as uh, as Walter Lord said, there's always something new to or seems to mm-hmm. be always something new to discover about
0: yeah it, there's it some, never there's
1: some no end to make about it that might seem petty to academic historians, but that is not to others right you know every few years I read something about you know the the composition of the of the rivets right and the <laughs> We and know,
0: all, the all resurf that. these debates resurface oh, or these, the-
1: these, these things that, you know, suggest, okay, here's a little twist that we haven't seen before, but mm-hmm. maybe it's a big twist, right? If, if
0: it's if, possible, if, I mean, that's true. You know, the
1: substandard that, that, that is <laughs> interesting and that's important, right?
0: And Yeah. It never goes away, which is why obviously I do what I do. And I think, you know, I mean, occasionally some of those tend to, you know, In the more kind of conspiracy theory camp, but 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 you're right, a lot of them are. I mean, that's why I do what I do. I think there are still stories to be told, not only on certain passengers that have you know maybe been ignored and then their lives can kind of scale out to you know stories of immigration, stories of race, stories of gender, which is. Obviously, a huge part of your book. And I wanted to talk about gender a little bit because, you know, basically everything that we just talked about is, you know, and you said it so beautifully, like Titanic has the meaning that a group of people put into it. And, you know, you write so much in the book about the gender dynamics coming out of 1912 and how various groups, you know, women's suffrage movement or their uh, nemeses uh, use the Titanic to their own. Liking right to kind of paint the picture of gender dynamics in America at the time. Do you think that that narrative of you know Anglo-Saxon white male heroism, Aster on the deck of Titanic with the cigar? Do you think that that still informs our understanding of it, or do you think that we've moved? I mean, I, I guess I just to me that's the number one debate I I tend to have with listeners with guests that come on always circles back to that do you think the story of the titanic is just permanently handicapped by that or do you think there's a way to i don't know i just would love to hear now that you are a little bit removed from writing this book because gender is such a big part of your book which i adore so what are your thoughts about that now kind of you know the aftermath of writing this
1: i don't i don't think it it handicaps anything but i i think it's there it's not like you know, I'm sure in some dark corner of the web, you could find somebody who still thinks that the Titanic disaster proves that women shouldn't have the right to vote. But, uh, you know, it's pretty unlikely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Are there still are there still people out there who think that the Titanic provides lessons about gender differences and gender hierarchies and uh, the importance of chivalry and how chivalry is more important than certain conceptions of equal rights. Absolutely. I think there are people out there who derive still that lesson. It's not, certainly not the predominant lesson of the disaster that it was in for a lot of people in, in 1912. But I do think that that the, the, the stories about gender, about women and children first, about chivalry do I mean, they certainly inform James Cameron's movie, right? Because he's trying to flip that on its head. He's trying to make the, he's, he's he's tried to, and successfully does make almost everybody in the first class absolutely loathsome, right? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Aside from from Rose and a a, a, you know Molly and
0: and Margaret Brown, who is Molly in the movie, but that's yeah, Yeah. that that's my bone to pick with that. It's he calls her Molly, not Margaret, but yeah.
1: yeah. (laughs) Um, So uh, it it's it was still on those filmmakers' minds in the late nineties, but I think it's it's not it's not something that prevents. Other avenues of exploration, and what you said earlier about the way that um, Titanic uh, historians um, and Titanic uh, Titanic fans have really broadened broadened out into looking beyond the celebrities of the first class mm-hmm. in, in terms of whose lives they try to trace out and what they try to learn about passengers who, were, who went unnamed for generations, really. I mean, they were on lists, but they, there was no substance to them. And it isn't an easy task. I mean, I take it that the opening up of a genealogical research has helped with this a lot. Yeah. But I really, I really admire that kind of democratization of who we look at on the ship and who we think matters, either among survivors or among victims.
0: What would you say is the, you know, researching this book pre 97. And I obviously I have the edition that's got the, you know, post kind of 97 information in and in a, a sort of, you know, epilogue how we I, I mean, I guess the question is, how strange was that to be working on this pre 97, then have 97 hit. And then and you write a little bit about it. But what I think you probably more than anybody in the world maybe understands what the difference is and how people perceived the cultural history pre 97 and post 97. So I would love to hear even just some you know, even just, you know, if you've got a funny story or something, but it's got to be a strange position, right? To be, you know, you're an academic, right? You're working on this book. I mean, you know, for academics, and if you're not an academic, you don't know, but a lot a lot of books don't make it pass, like you said, a specialized audience in the academy. And suddenly you're on the world stage. Like how can you just describe kind of what that process was like? I'm just so curious. Yeah, it
1: was I mean, it was totally unexpected and you know, maybe the the most notable moment of just dumb good luck on my part. <laughs> Come out with a book about the Titanic, uh, just as <laughs> all of this stuff was happening. Yeah. I think what, what people don't remember is that even before the movie came out, there was a Tony Award-winning Broadway musical. Yeah. Um, there was a TV miniseries, um, so it was kind of it was kind of stirring, even before. The movie came out, and there was a lot of predictions that the movie would be a huge flop. Um, there was a lot of stuff in the in the press about how over budget was going, and it was just a kind of chaotic production. And who knew? So, but it was it it was yeah it was it was very surprising to be on uh, you know a local NPR show and have the phone lines jammed up by twelve and thirteen year old girls. Right? Oh, that that happen <laughs> yeah. on. Uh, on, I probably
0: on, was one uh, of them. On the I don't know.
1: <laughs> right. And so, you know, who,
0: uh,
1: you know, they screen those questions. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of screaming about Leo, but the, um, <laughs> it, it was, yeah, it was, it was great. It was, it, it definitely meant that however, you know, whatever criticisms I may have of James Cameron's movie, you know, I. I wouldn't complain about the uh, oh about the,
0: uh, and but, I think about both the, can exist. yeah about the,
1: about the effects that that had it just made anything with Titanic in the title you know just took off even books with footnotes like mine kind of took out took mm-hmm. off way beyond what anybody uh would have predicted um and i and I do think that it you know, it did it it absolutely and probably permanently shifted how we think about the titanic it's just hard to in it's it's hard to it's hard to f- spend time with the titanic without having images mm-hmm. and characters from that movie in your head now right that's who comes do, to mind
0: do you think that pre 97 the, and you write obviously a little bit th- about this in the book do you think pre-97 the biggest the touchstone moment for most people was Ballard finding the wreck would you say that that pre-97 or pre I guess 95 96 when all this news is breaking that there's a new miniseries a new movie that that was the moment that that the average person's kind of images like in images in your head sort of reverted to was the Ballard
1: definitely yeah, yeah I mean I, I ended up I ended up dividing the book more or less in half between focusing on 1912 and then focusing on two later moments. One of the later moments is the 50s -hmm. with Walter Lord's book and then the movie version of A Night to Remember um, and also the movie Titanic and just the resonance of the disaster in the 1950s. And then the 80s, right? Where Ballard's discovery really does create a version of Titanic mania that in retrospect pales <laughs> compared to. Yeah,
0: but it was mania. pretty big at the time was, though. I mean, huge. yeah,
1: it was, it was huge. Yeah. It was, it was, it got, a, it got a huge amount of attention and um, it also struck a note that's always been there in the Titanic, which is this, this interesting combination of reverence and commercialism, right? Or <laughs> uh, that, a lot of a, a lot of what, you know, I think the people who went to the cemetery in Halifax and rubbed the gravestone of Jack Dawson, right, or John Dawson, I can't remember what I it think was. It,
0: I think it just says J. J. Dawson, J. but it, it was John, maybe, yeah, yeah.
1: Right, I mean, that's about, I don't know what that's about, but... Um, I don't know,
0: that's what I try to, that's what I'm trying to get at, you know, with the podcast, is I right. think... A it's moment about, like that is is what I'm trying to do surgery on, I guess. Yeah. Uh,
1: it's about – it is about an utter fascination to the point of obsession and – but also, you know, people have always made money. Not that rubbing the gravestone is about making money, but, but in that it was spurred by a huge Hollywood money-making yeah. movie, um, those things have always – have always gone together i think that's um, and even in 1912 people were trying to sell the titanic as much as they were you know, uh, i mean
0: the first movie is a few yeah. weeks later yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. and do you what was that process the I, the memorialization process i think about a lot as we enter in you know now we're so deep into this next century You know, there's a lot of debate about, you know, artifacts. Ballard is still very vocal about this. There's Ocean Gate that runs expeditions down to the wreck now. And and I don't want to get into the, you know, tit for tat debate about that. I mean, we could talk about that for years and never come to any conclusion. Um, And I think there's a lot of people in sort of both camps. But what was it like to sort of be on site there and... I, I guess you know, for me as someone who, in my dream come true, would be able to go to the wreck site, even if it was just to to be there at the spot and and have a personal sort of moment of reflection. But what did that process feel like? And and as a someone who came to Titanic in this very academic way, and I mean that in a good way that you know you're you're you were deep in research and 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 finding the Adams letters and that sort of thing. Coming to it from that angle, how did that feel? And And what was the feeling of kind of those around? I mean, because there is such a reverence and a solemnity, which is part of the reason I love this community so much. So,
1: Well, I think think George Tulloch, who's the reason that I went on that expedition, really epitomized that, you know. I mean, he was a businessman, right? And he got himself the salvage rights. And he absolutely, within... Certain limits, which not everybody thought he respected, but within certain limits, Mm -hmm. he thought that it was his mission to preserve the memory of the Titanic. And he made the case quite eloquently at times, I thought, about why salvaging artifacts and having them travel around the world in Mm -hmm. exhibitions was an appropriate way of doing that. And, you know, I was surprised that he invited me to go on that expedition in, in 1998. Out of the blue, when an artifacts exhibition was coming to Boston, I got a call from him. Maybe it was an email saying, do you want to meet for lunch? I had met him on the Charlie Rose show just after my book came out. And it was me I mean, I was the minor guest. It was Peter Stone who wrote the musical and George Tulloch and me. And I think wow. I barely, I think I barely got a word in edgewise,
0: <laughs> oh, gosh, <laughs>
1: which uh, is yeah. fine. Um, so I met him then, which would have been in 90s, 95 or 96. And then, yeah, out of the blue in in um, probably early, late 97 or early ninety eight he called and asked if I would have any interest in going. And I, and well, he didn't ask me that on the phone. He, he asked to meet me for lunch. So I, I, I had lunch with him and, and he said to me, you know, he basically said, I didn't like you when I first
0: met Oh no, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, sometimes I, uh, the best relationships start with that sentence, so it's fine. Yeah. He, uh, he you
1: know, as he explained that he thought I was, he thought I was too irreverent about the Titanic, right? and this is coming from a person who himself was accused of being grossly irreverent about yep. the titanic by by uh having these expeditions and these cruises alongside the expeditions and pulling up artifacts and uh without a lot of faith that they uh, among some people that they would be many people that they would be adequately preserved and looked after and wouldn't be mm-hmm. sold off and you know that whole ongoing debate but but yeah, his his, his <laughs> he says his early impression of me was that I was just kind of snotty about the whole thing, which was certainly not my intention and not how I read what I wrote. But, me, um,
0: me, either. I mean, not me. <laughs> I I certainly didn't. <laughs> uh,
1: but uh, but we had you know we had a really nice lunch, and he said you know he did say I I read your book more carefully or or, or I reread your book. I can't remember what it was, and that you know I really I really came to see it. Differently, and and so he invited me, and <laughs> I was thrilled. Um, I mean, you know, this is this is a statement of fact. I'm not being self deprecating when I say that I was about a fifth string talking head, right? Because this was going to be my, my actual role on it uh, on the expedition was going to be to fill airtime if the live broadcasts from oh
0: yeah, I remember that from,
1: from the book. wreck had, yeah. had yeah. failed and all of that, and everybody got seasick or food poisoning or something then they would have gone to me in desperation and talked about the cultural history of oh, the text. Gosh.
0: as <laughs> um, long as you weren't also i guess you were thinking i better not eat the same things that everybody else is eating so that no, but yeah, um, well,
1: the, the funny thing about that was that the NBC and Discovery channel crew they got all they they all got issued the the patches right the
0: oh the uh, seasick and,
1: yeah. right the seasick and so the company issued Patches and and I, I just took Dramamine or Bonine and I was okay. And there was a lot, yeah. They were they were they were out of some of those people were out of commission for a while.
0: Okay, so they needed. It was a good idea to have yeah. the uh, backup options, I guess. Right, because, right. Um, um,
1: but but it was it was yeah. It was again. There's there there are always these sh- curious juxtapositions when you're talking about the Titanic. So when they told us that we were there. Uh, You know, on one hand, there's nothing around you. I mean, there were other ships on the expedition, but doesn't feel any different from, you know,
0: (laughs) any patch of ocean.
1: Right. It doesn't look different. But then when you hear that, it does strike the imagination and you start to think about what happened that night and what's down there. and, Mm -hmm. uh, And you can't help but be moved by that. And then this was the expedition where, um, they succeeded after not succeeding on the previous expedition, which I think was in 96, they succeeded in bringing up the so-called big piece, mm-hmm. the, the, the piece of the, of the hall. And, 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 um, and, uh, there were all sorts of, you know, I spent most of my time pretty far afield from the action. You know, I was on a, a one of the, one of the ships that really was just a kind of dormitory and um there were people who had higher priority jobs tended to commute <laughs> uh, back and forth to the action. So I was kind of exiled to, you know, reading big novels and chatting with people. It was really, it was a nice vacation. Right? I was about to say, it
0: sounds <laughs> wonderful. I mean, if yeah. someone told me I could just go park there at that site and, yeah. and yeah. you know, look out no, at the and, ocean. And, 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 <laughs> some,
1: and, some day, and some days I did get to, you know, go kind of visit the action and really see what they were doing and, 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 and look at images you know, from the submersibles and talk to people who were actually going down to the wreck. And that was, uh, that was super fascinating, but I did manage to, to get to the abay, which is the ship that they were pulling up the big piece onto that day. And it was, it was dramatic. It was, it was moving. I mean, George came around and basically urged us when it came on deck, not to cheer and to treat it with proper, Mm -hmm reverence because this was a big piece of the ship that was seeing
0: know, the sunlight for the first yeah, time yeah, in however yeah. many mean, years right, right, yeah right, you
1: know, coming, coming up um from the ocean and then it was it it was just sitting um just sitting for days i can't remember how long exactly but it was just sitting there this enormous 16 ton piece of the titanic was just sitting That's on it. the on the on the the bow of the, of the obey f- until we got back to Boston. So yeah, you could just kind of, if you were well, on the, that, was- you could just kind of walk up to it and look at it and say, wow.
0: <laughs> it's like, um, it's like that scene from raise the Titanic, the movie where, yeah. you know, when it's, you know, when it, I mean, the thing is when that scene, when, when it does rise up, it is, as horrible as that movie is in some ways. And it it is a really powerful scene because it is that moment where you imagine as a Titanic person, oh, well, this, this is all of our dreams come true, right? If we could actually see her come up into the sunlight and we could get her back, so to speak. And it's almost like you, you were there for whatever smaller version of that we have had, which is the reemergence of that one piece. It's pretty incredible to just imagine it Sitting right there. I can't. I have to say, I've done so many interviews for the pod and so many episodes, but this is one of my favorite moments I've ever had on the podcast. Is this is that is such a <laughs> in the moment story that I your, mean, that's your incredible. Listeners are,
1: your listeners, I just realized, are going to realize what a land and titanic fake I am because I think I said it was on the bow of the ship when it was actually, of course, on the stern of the ship. So,
0: oh, no, I make I, I, <laughs> one time I said boat instead of ship. And uh, I didn't. I forgot to edit it out. And I got in big trouble. But um, it's like it's like at the beginning of '97, where the little girl says, uh, or the dad says boat, and then the little girl has to correct him and say it's a ship, Daddy. Um, so you know, in terms of you know cultural representations, kind of an awkward segue. Although I guess I mentioned Clive Custler. So, but you know, I actually just did a kind of a research. Um, deep dive on the 1943 Nazi propaganda movie, I did a like a Patreon bonus episode on that one. And so it's really on my mind, like just the kind of legacy of the film adaptation. So, you know, you write about this in the book, obviously, but what is your takeaway on the kind of now collection of films from all the way 1912, say from the Titanic to, you know, they're still making them there's Titanic blood and steel that wasn't too long ago, and that sort of thing. Titanic 666 a horror movie that came out a few weeks ago. But, you know, if you were to if you were to like create a a lecture on, you know, films of Titanic. I mean, which not that we can ever say definitively which one is the most accurate. I'm not really interested in that conversation, but which one really resonates with you in terms of the closest that we could get to a sort of you know whether it's historical accuracy but also sort of emotional feeling of like which one resonates with you you're obviously a titanic person now you've bit lived with it for so long you've done so much research watched all of these like which one sticks with you which one do you th- you return to in your mind and think like, oh that moved me or that was powerful is there one that that kind of sticks in your brain
1: a night to remember i think yeah
0: is okay
1: because, although for their time the special effects were excellent, and yeah,
0: a hundred percent, yeah,
1: um, it's not so much about that um, as it is about creating characters. And I think the characters are, you know, I think the acting is brilliant in that movie. I think, I, I think the, the the feel of it, even though Cameron's movie is in a way so much more vivid it's bigger it's the special effects are grander. Um, it's in color. <laughs> I just, I just have more of a, I get more of a sense of what it must've felt like watching.
0: That, yeah. that
1: Maybe that, that may be my own quirks, but I, uh, w- what it must've felt like from, uh, from a night to remember, um, maybe because it is more modest at least in retrospect it's more modest you know it's a disaster movie and it's and it's in the genre so it's <laughs> so the kind of the kind of the tropes of disaster movies are there but to me the the kind of emotional the emotional there's, it has an emotional heft that other titanic movies don't don't have For me. Now I want to watch it again. It's been (laughs) it's
0: It's always good. These are these are the types of movies that are amazing to return to. You know, you love them, but you let you let some time go by and then you return to them. It's, you know, the 97 is that way for me as well.
1: Right. And and I just, you know, I love the denouement with Kenneth Moore on the you know, overturned lifeboat, yeah. kind of talking about what all this means, right? And he he basically just quotes Walter Lord himself about how we were so confident, and this is the end of an era. None of which I believe is historically true, but it's got a kind of, <laughs> you know, but it's got a kind of, yeah, as I said, it's got a kind of emotional power to it. Even 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 if you know, in my view the good old days didn't end you know <laughs> yeah. on April 14th 15th 1912 but um I, I don't know it's just it 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 really it really packs a punch
0: in, well and in, it's in it's me. It it work. I mean, it, you write about this in the book, right, that these movies that are made in the 50s, you know, the Hollywood Titanic, The Night to Remember, again, it's the meaning is what people put into Titanic. So those films are a direct product of the environment they're coming from. And they're reflecting all of these 1950s, val, you know, questions um of questions of ethics, questions of gender, questions of, you know, roles in modern America, all of that. And, and I, you know, obviously that's in the book and, and people will really enjoy reading about that. But yeah, I think, you know, in terms of, you uh, know, it is weird because the 43 Titanic, even though it's a Nazi propaganda film, which is, you know, blood on its hands, but it is the first movie that is called simply Titanic. And it's also the first one that really combines the, you know, this one, <laughs> their version of historical accuracy with, you know, these fictional characters that are sort of implanted into the story. And so, you know, the Cameron movie, all of the movies since are very much in that lineage in a weird way, which is is so strange to say, since that the circumstances of the 43 movie are, you know, not great um, to say the least. But um, I, I guess my last couple of questions, one would be, you know, when you were researching this, Work And I know, you know, this has been decades ago now. And so I, you know, but I, I'm so that's why the big piece story really got to me. When you were researching, when you look back on that period, are there any moments that really stick out when you're interacting with, you know, people from the Titanic Historical Society, these people that this is their passion, their life's work. I'm so enamored with the obsession. That's why I started the podcast. I'm obsessed with why people are obsessed with it. And do you just any anecdotes, memories of of what it felt like to sort of be in the milieu of you know Titanic people that have put so many years of work into you know looking into the minutia of the minutia of survivors, you know the survivor interviews. Walter Lord, obviously, his work is was opened all of that up. And then the Titanic Historical Society kind of picked up that thread. So what was that like? And do you have any, any specific memories that might be fun to share?
1: Uh, The most vivid memory is spending a morning in Walter Lord's apartment in Manhattan, and talking to him and seeing his artifacts, his model from the movie version of an item member. Was it was it a stuffed pig Was it Edith Ruttles oh the
0: uh, yeah the the her little talisman. it I was it squeaked it made noise right so I don't yeah. know if it, it was like an early version of a squeaky toy in some way I don't know but
1: yeah I mean Walter wrote a lot of books about a lot of different subjects but you could tell that the Titanic I mean, it kind of made his name but it also yeah. was really near and dear to him just based on what he had, <laughs> you know, on display in his, in his apartment. And he was absolutely fascinating to talk to, to hear how he got interested in it by, um, you know, being on a trip on the Olympic and, and, and he really, he really did. He really did. W- w- when I asked him what, what he thought the lasting contribution of a night to remember was, I mean, to me, the lasting contribution of a night to remember is just how painstaking it is. And also just what a great read it is still just the way he, he moves us from one point on the ship to another. And the way that sometimes time seems to be going really quickly. And sometimes time seems to be almost stopped and, and, um, it's a really skillfully written narrative. And even if some of the details have been questioned over time, I I think it's still just as a, as a read, it's still, you know, the, the, the most exciting book to read about what happened.
0: I I absolutely agree. Yeah.
1: And, um, but, but, but what he said and, and what, more or less ends the book and ends the movie is he really thought his contribution was, was this point, but this, this idea of, of the end of an era and that the type, you know, everything changed after the Titanic. And as I said, I wholeheartedly disagree with that, but it has a kind of poetic truth to it that is um, that's moved a lot of people over the years, not, not always in positive directions. I mean, I think, I don't think, you know, one of the problems with, romanticizing the good old days is you ignore a lot. Right. And one reason why I, I guess somewhat perversely start, decided to start the book with other events happening uh, in April, 1912 was to upset that idea that everything was calm and everything was placid and people knew their place and um, in, you know, and, 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 and everything was just hunky dory in April 1912, so I start the book with, um, with a series of lynchings that happened in March mm-hmm. and 1912, and with, um, and with vigilante violence against radicals in San Diego, and with an enormous women's suffrage march um, in New York City. And it's on the
0: date of that's the day of Astor's funeral in New York, right? right? Yeah.
1: Right. So I guess I was you know, challenging Walter (laughs) and, and the kind of, uh, propensity for nostalgia that, that, you know, end of an era construct, um, offers up. But I still, I still really admire that. I think it's, Ah, I I think it's a, I think as a sort of literary trope, it works beautifully as, as, as a, well,
0: it's the story. As histor- yeah, and he his history is
1: not it's not awesome, but as as a literary trope, it works.
0: Isn't it is, and and you know he what he took is I mean he showed us right that the story of Titanic is I mean it is literary right two and a half hours it's a morality play it's it's two and a half hours where care you know and as he wrote it you know these real people but characters are kind of walking through. This scenario, and absolutely, I mean, he framed it in the way that we all think about it. He, you know, put he implanted that emotion in us. I think that wasn't even there before. Do you? F- this is an impromptu question, and then I'll, I'll get to kind of wrapping everything up. But you meant to mentioned the word, you know, romanticizing, and I think about this a lot, and I get this question a lot from listeners. Is it sort of creepy or weird to? romanticize a disaster, which is, I mean, even, I mean, the 97 movie is doing it on some level, on a big level, obviously. And I'm the biggest fan of that movie, but I'll say it. And we have, you know, museums now that sell merchandise, like recreation of the teacups. And, um, you know, there's people on Instagram that are painstakingly recreating Edwardian dresses that are, you know, to wear to Titanic dinner parties. And I kind of stand with you. I think it can be both. There is, you know, a reverence that we should have and have to have that I think maybe it odds a little bit with that. But I think it's okay to question it and also to really appreciate people's obsession with it. But do you feel like that? Ha- I mean, do you think that the ro- that romanticizing that that 1912 moment? I don't know. I mean, it, I guess academically, it's a little bit, I hate to use word dangerous, because we're not talking about you know, medical, uh, issues, but I, you know, I don't know if it's, if it's a little date that does bother me sometimes, right. That this, you know, this idea that in a pre 1912 world, everything was sort of, um, sorted yeah, I th- out.
1: I think that's a, I think that's a problem. I mean, I think you can still, um, I mean, people are going to do what they do with this, right. Course, but, but um, yeah as you said a couple of minutes ago, I think, you know, wondering what you would have done or admiring those people who did, um, act heroically in various ways, (laughs) you know, you asked, you asked about encounters that I had when I was researching the book. And, um, I did encounter, um, some people Um, You know, this is a sort of very small set or was a very small set of Titanic obsessives, but there are uh, Titanic fans who are convinced that they were on the ship in a previous life. Right. But the interesting thing about that is that they is that they. They're always in the first cabin, of course, right? Nobody oh, nobody yeah. can imagine that they were a Syrian immigrant, right? In their previous life. Maybe they can. I don't know. But
0: well, but, yeah, but no, the I, see, I the I people I
1: encountered imagined that they were They were
0: at, they were Madeline Astor or they yeah. were Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So make of that make of that what you will. I just to I me, that is I, so
0: interesting that that group of people exists. That <laughs> to me, it blo- it blows my mind and I love it. And now I just want to, I want to talk to everybody, well, you know, but, but with, I'm like you, I, I think I call it just like healthy skepticism, right? I, I love it when people are obsessed with something, but I, I definitely like, you know, hang back with the academics view a little bit on things, but I, but it's not to, you know, make fun of them or, I, I mean, I, I genuinely appreciate the obsession that people have in that situation. But I also sort of want to figure out why they do right. and dissect right. it a little bit. Yeah. Right.
1: No, I, I think, I think that I wouldn't necessarily use the word dangerous either, but it, you know, there are political implications of imagining that mm-hmm. <laughs> the world was a, uh, a, a It's not even a matter of a better place, but you know, better for whom, right? In 1912, right? Mm -hmm. And and, um, as long as you have that question in mind, right?
0: That informing every part of it, yeah. Yeah. You know, typically, I typically one of the last questions I ask every guest, and probably my listeners are like, you know, move on, let's let's ask a different question. It's probably enough now. But I I tend to just ask, you know, why Titanic? Why is it something that um, we Always return to in terms of you know our 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 analogies that everybody understands. Now it's memes that everybody understands. I mean, my husband and I, um, he probably knows more about Titanic than any software engineer in the world. Let me just say that. But that's a conversation we have. Is you know we should be watching a show. It happened last night. At, we'll watch a show, Titanic reference, a movie brand new movie that just came out, Titanic reference. Um, it is the go-to metaphor, the go-to analogy. And so typically I ask people why, but I think for you, I would love to hear a, a, kind of a little bit more of a, a pointed question, which is, you know, your book so wonderfully illustrates how the meaning of Titanic differs for different groups of people. And, and like we've been talking about how they insert that meaning. Where do you think that's headed? I mean, Titanic is the ultimate metaphor, the ultimate analogy, often politically. Where do you think that people might use that moving forward? I mean, you know, I've, I've seen people make pandemic, you know, connections. So I, I just, I don't know if, you know, not to put you on the spot, but have, have you thought any about kind of where those metaphors and analogies and comparisons might go in the future? Like, do you think we're going to keep returning to it as that or do you think it might eventually fade as the ultimate you know meme that everybody understands
1: it doesn't seem to fade It, it if anything it proliferates but it proliferates in what i would say are increasingly in all ways right so if you're a pundit and you use the phrase rearranging deck chairs to to say what you know, to talk about Biden's response to the Ukraine or whatever it may be, yeah. right? It's just, it's too easy, right? It's, it's been, people have been trotting that out now f- forever. And s- so, I, I, will it, will it get new life in, you know, will the Titanic get new <laughs> metaphorical life um, beyond just sort of, Uh, the tired expressions being a kind of of go-to uh metaphor for arrogance or for you know i mean the rearranging deck chairs is about not doing enough or just a sort of you know inadequate response you know kind of cosmetic response to some deeper problem um yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether it will or not. It seem it seems to me that you know, one one way that the Titanic has served as a model for how we respond to catastrophes of all sorts uh, is that uh, we do have this propensity to want to find the silver lining in things, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and we want to turn a story of um, unnecessary death into uh, a story of uh, that reaffirms our faith in human nature, or in some cases, even reaffirms our faith in technology, to some extent, I think the response to the Titanic sort of set the framework for those sorts of narratives Mm -hmm. that we get, that we generate out of disasters, including disasters that are of a much greater magnitude than, (laughs) than the Titanic. Right. And so, so maybe it stays with us in that way that we, even if we're not explicitly acknowledging the Titanic as a, a metaphor or a way of telling a story of disasters, we still have a certain debt to it because it really sort of set the stage for how we tell the stories of how we told the stories of many other 20th century disasters and how we continue Mm -hmm. to tell 21st century disasters.
0: Well, and I think, you know, that's a huge part of your book is the, you know, the media response, the creation of a narrative in the moment in real time. And I, and I would argue, and and this, your book covers a lot of this, I would argue that is one of the reasons why, I do think that's one way in which the Titanic disaster does have, and just in my opinion, a lot of historical historical significance even for academic historians, because I do think it is this, the immediate availability of information and how that disaster is reported in 1912 in newspapers. And, you know, some of it's, horrific i mean some of it you've got i i did a captain smith episode and it was digging into some of the news coverage and you've got you know third class passengers where they're taking their story for the newspaper and then they're just cre- adding on and creating you know they're putting words in like a third class woman's mouth i i read about it, and and you know this claim that she had seen captain smith like brandishing a revolver at the end at third class passengers and and so some of it is just horrible that you know, that the media, um, some of the media reactions, but it is this first, uh, in some ways, I think one of the first ways we have sort of a real time public reaction in that particular way and I do think that's one of the reasons why people obsess about it, because if you combine that and the level of sources that we have with that, for that kind of immediate reaction, and that they're getting that, they're getting the info, you know, survivors, victims in real time. And you combine that with, I think, um, just this obsession with a loss of innocence and like we were talking about this what if I think everybody just wants to imagine that they were on that ship in that two and a half hours and they had two and a half hours to decide whether they were going to be a hero or a villain or whether they were going to be scared and panic or whether they were going to be Margaret Brown in the lifeboat, whatever it may be, you know, in terms of real time, and I've probably used that phrase 15 times now. Um, I do think it has I do think it has a lot of significance. And I think that's, you know, and and so much of your book really illustrates how that played out. And I think the number one takeaway that a reader who maybe hasn't read a book like yours on Titanic will get... Is exactly what you said a few minutes ago, which is that life in 1912 is not necessarily what you thought it was if you only have a passing knowledge and understanding of the Titanic story, that it is a world in you know, the US is a country in turmoil. There's it's a world in turmoil, and we're sort of on the cusp of modernity, yes, but it's not like modernity just Pops up. It's not like, you know, oh, I woke up today and things seemed modern, that, you know, that there are these, you know, simmering and almost boiling pots all across the United States. And I think you're, book more than any I've read on the disaster does such a good job of framing what the world and the country looks like at that moment and how Titanic then kind of, you know, sits down in our understanding of those groups. So uh, I think it's very fitting that our conversation, I think, mostly circled around that theme, because I think that's the most important part of your book. And and I guess my, you know, just to wrap up, my last question would be: Do you do you stay interested in it? I mean, I know you've written on so many other things, and you are very busy academic, and you know. Uh, but what has your kind of Titanic world looked like since you finished this book? Do you stay up on it at all, or is it kind of in the rearview mirror? Or
1: it comes, it comes and goes. Uh, yeah. um, the hundredth anniversary perked up my interest again, and I. Yeah did some revisions on the book and wrote a new afterword and...
0: Which I recommend people get that version, by the way. That's the one I have definitely. Just sorry to interrupt, but people should definitely make sure they get that version, so...
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing I'll say is that when I wrote the book, the the world of Titanic w- was much more circumscribed, right? That That the way that people who were deeply interested in the Titanic networked was through either the Titanic historical society or Titanic international. And their mode of communication was printed magazines and, and conventions. Right. Um, so, I mean, I'm really dating myself now, but you know, I haven't really, I occasionally take a, I wouldn't call a deep dive you know, a sort of shallow dive into the, the Titanic internet world, which Mm -hmm. really didn't exist when I wrote the first edition, um, of the book. And, and I think it's, I think it's totally changed how people interact. Um, obviously the film too, totally changed how people think about and visualize, uh, and imagine the disaster. But I also think, Um, you know, I think, I think that was a fairly closed world, um, of, I mean, it was, there were a lot of members of those and probably still are lots of members of those two, um, organizations, but it's, 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 it's opened up. There are many more avenues I think now
0: Oh, so, yeah. Then, and like you it, said earlier, accessi- yeah, yeah. <laughs> accessibility, for better or worse. But yeah, there's, you know, I mean, number one, all the research is accessible to anyone in the world, which is amazing. You know, so many sources online. Yeah, I have to look yeah.
1: at my, I have to use microfilm, you know. Well, and that's what, that's
0: what I, I, you know, I was that last, I was that last group in grad school where we still were very much like the, fi- I, I finished in 2012. I started in 2006. Uh, so you know, I was, I think that last cohort where we, I mean, we had still been told by all of our professors, it's the physical, right? Like we need to be microfilm. We need to travel physically to archives in every scenario. And so I'm grateful for that because I do still have an, I have such appreciation for that physical research, but then obviously I've bridged over to doing a lot online as well. So I'm, I'm thankful that I got to be kind of both. Um, but it, it is. It is really strange now. You know, the majority of what I need when I'm researching episodes, I, I can't. I mean, I have some travel coming up that I'm excited about, and I think that some of that. You, I mean, you can't replace the experience of going, especially to the historic sites. But uh, yeah, it's really weird. I, just how much is is there, and how many? Um, there's message. I mean, I don't know if you've ever taken a look at like the message boards on Encyclopedia Titanica. It's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, I mean, some of the genealogical research is incredible. I mean, if you go through some of the threads of, um, you know, even second and third class passengers, there are descendants who have done a lot of really amazing research. So some of it's incredible. But yeah, I imagine it is very different than when you were poking around, you know, in the 90s. So
1: yeah.
0: but um, but I think,
1: I think I do think it's, it's more inviting in a way than it was mm-hmm. 20 or 30 years ago, right? That there's, it was, was, the nice thing about Titanic is that nobody ever seems to have felt that there was a hurdle into making yourself into a Titanic that you had to overcome in order to become a Titanic historian. But I think Mm -hmm. the bar is, for better or worse, but I think largely for better is, 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 is lower now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. It, it, it's, you know, the, I mean, there are multiple books published every month from what I, you know, I mean, it, and a lot of them are with, you know, self-published or with academic, uh, smaller, like not non-academic kind of smaller niche presses. And no, I completely 100% agree with you. I think it is mostly a good that there are this many people that are obsess and return and do this kind of minute research, you know, and it the level of accessibility is is astounding. But I also think that's why, you know, a book like yours is really important because I think we do need, um, you know, academic researchers to, as your book does, lay out that you know, that marriage of the two is really wonderful to see. And I think, uh, really inspiring. I think, you know, if someone is a Titanic writer or researcher in a kind of quote unquote amateur sense, though, I think books like yours are great guideposts um, for them to kind of understand the framework that they're working in. So I'm like you, I see, I see the, you know, the pros of both. And to me, it's, it's very humbling because when I sit down to research a topic, uh, it's overwhelming. You know, there's 20 books that I've got to look at. And then like you're saying, all of the online sources now, I can never do it complete justice. And a lot of my listeners could completely school me on certain aspects of the ship. And And I always preface my episodes by saying that. And I always ask for feedback, you know, from listeners. So it's it's a whole world and I'm meeting a lot of people in it. And it's, you know, it's really incredible. So... Uh, But, but thank you for, you know, taking the time to do this. I, you know, you're very wonderfully established and accomplished historian and academic. And this is, like I said at the beginning, I'm a little starstruck. It's wonderful to get to meet you. And your work a few years ago really opened up my mind to just all of the ways in which I could explore You know the cultural history, which I could maybe try to bridge some of the things that we've talked about, and that's the goal of the podcast. So it's you know as I have my first season kind of winding down, so this is the perfect end cap to get to talk to the person who wrote the book that kind of started it in my mind. So there you go. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you for thank you for inviting me. This was a lot of fun.
0: chirping as I record this. I think the birds in Texas are strangely extra happy today. I hope you enjoyed that interview. It was truly one of my favorite moments of the whole season of Unsinkable and I just, the interview was just a couple of days ago as I record this and I'm still thinking about it and It's really changed my outline for the fall and and upcoming episodes that I'm working on, how I'm I'm conceptualizing them. So thank you again, Stephen. It was fantastic. All right. Season finale will be in a couple of weeks, guys, and it's going to be the Kate Winslet Retrospective. I wanted to let you know something exciting. I did set up a Google voicemail box so that you can share your Kate moments or Kate thoughts with me, Um, you know, just a little love note to her or a favorite role or how she, I mean, she inspires me. I know that sounds cheesy, but she always has, and, and she continues to. But a way in which she does, or a funny moment of hers, you like anything, it could be anything. You can still send it via voice memo if that's what you prefer to unsyncablepod at gmail.com. But I have a new option. I have a Google voicemail number. It does not ring. This number goes straight to voicemail. So no worries. I'm not going to awkwardly answer (laughs) or anything. But you can call it and leave a voicemail. And I can use those recordings on the pod. That number is 512-650-8414. So. Please send me those. I'm going to play some of them on the podcast. I'm so excited to put that together. And yeah, we'll be wrapping up the season, but I won't be gone for long. Be back in by late August, early September. And, uh, you know, the Patreon page will remain the same bonus episodes and communication there. And of course, I'll still be on socials, keeping up with you guys, and letting you know about my travel, letting you know about upcoming episodes, I'm researching kind of still giving you sort of inside view of the research process too. And of course, on socials, uh, Twitter and Insta, I am unsinkable pod. All right, you guys, I hope your summer has started off well. If you're here in the US, I hope uh, you and yours are doing great. And as always, thanks for listening and talk soon.